You know, being part of a, a group of people that have a common purpose can be a very powerful experience. And I was thinking this week, you know, if I could come up with some type of illustration of maybe a sports team that's come together for a common purpose. And yeah, yes, I see that hand. I see that hand. And it, and it finally struck me. The Texas Tech women's basketball team really has an opportunity next year to make some strides, don't they? But there's another team that's making a little bit of news. It's the men's basketball team. And, and if you're a, a fan of that team as, as I am and you're hoping for the best tomorrow, uh, it's going to be a very, very interesting game. You know, that you think about being on that team. If you, were, if you had the pleasure of being on that team and you worked hard all year, you listened to your coach, you went through the drills that – you know, the whole stadium is not filled with people cheering you on as you're running drills. You know, you're doing that on your own, and you come through this entire tournament, and here you are, you're right at the precipice of achieving an incredible goal, uh, something that only one team gets to achieve. That kind of memory can stay with you for the rest of your life. And if you have the pleasure of victory tomorrow, then that type of uh, those types of memories they take on like a, a mystical or a magical aura. I mean, you're going to be interviewed on radio, on TV, and by newspaper writers for decades of newspapers last night. And I mean, it's just going, you're going to tell all these stories of everything that you went through. And so, and it's all because you're part of a team. Not any of that could have happened with just one individual. One individual does not win a team sport, but it's, it's the team together. And you're going to have that bond, those friendships, for the rest of your life. And if things don't go as planned tomorrow, and we won't think about that too much, but if they don't, then that, that story that's a part of your life and your heart it loses a little bit of its magical and mystical aura. Uh, but it's still a, an incredible story of, boy, we came so close. We came so close but we're hoping for the best, that it's the first option that uh, they get to experience. And the rest of us that are along for the ride, we sort of get to have a little bit, a, a, a smidgen, a little slice of that type of mystical aura because we were proud of them and we're sort of proud of ourselves because we, what did we do? We sort of lucked into an incredible experience that someone else is a part of. You know, it's a difference. There's a difference between being part of a team that's working hard and achieving incredible goals and being part of the cheerleaders up in the stands saying, go team, go. And uh, it's so much more meaningful if you're actually part of that team. That idea of being part of a group of people with a common goal, a, a, a common type of achievement, something that you're wanting to reach, uh, that's a pa very powerful concept. And it's not just for sports. But it can be being part of a faith community. And even here at Broadview Baptist Church, there are things that we do together that we can't, cannot do alone. And we, we take pleasure in the fact that we're able to do so much together and there's so much more that God has in store for us. But you think about our own church. This church has been around since about 1977, 1978. And in the history of mankind, well, that's just a little smidgen. That's, that's not long at all. But there's another group of people, a faith community, 
that's really been around for a much longer period of time that we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about today. And uh, it's this community, the, the Jewish community, that has some very special commonalities. And the main thing that uh, really binds them together is that they have the law of God. They were given the law of God about 3,500 years ago. God, with his own finger, wrote on stone tablets his law. Ten, ten of them, ten commandments. And he gave these standards for all of humanity to follow, but he gave them to the Jewish people. And so they are the ones who have the law of God, that have shared the law of God with the rest of humanity. God's law was given to the Jew, and it's what binds Jews together. Even to this day, they are really people of the book. They're people of his word, of his law, his standards. And that idea of being part of a community is very powerful, as I said, because it gives you a sense of unity. And even today, 3,500 years after that event happened, Jews today, as diverse as they are, still share a tremendous unity. I mean, there are some Jews today that are, that are atheists, if you can imagine that. And so they're, they're Jews biologically, but there's still that, some, that, that one thing, that event in history that binds them together. It, when you're with a group of people, part of a community, you have this sense that you're not alone, that there are others that believe as you do. You have this sense of purpose. And, and for Jews, they were supposed to be, and, and some really try to live this out, but God had called them to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, they were to be the representatives of God to all the other nations, all of the other people around the world. And, of course, it is through the Jewish nation that God sent his own son, the Savior of the world, Jesus, to bring salvation to all of us. But let me tell you, when you're part of a community, and even especially a community of faith, there can be some false promises with that, too. You can begin to believe things that are not necessarily so. It can be like a fool's gold, and let me explain. You see, you might think that if you're a part of a certain community of faith, that you're right in God's eyes, that you're justified, that you're accepted by God. Why does God accept you? Well, because I'm part of this community of faith, you might say. But that's fool's gold. It's not really real. It's not necessarily true. You see, not every individual food at a restaurant that you even that, that you like and a restaurant that you would call good, not every single item on the menu is necessarily good. Even though you might say that restaurant's good. Not every player on the team is worthy of getting out on the court. There are some that ride the bench. Make sure that bench doesn't fly up in the air. Right? And likewise, not every person that's a part of a community of faith, is necessarily saved, necessarily accepted in the eyes of God. And we're going to talk about what it takes to be accepted in the eyes of God today. And so even if we have a community of faith, and a community that's built around this idea of faith, it doesn't mean that necessarily every single person in that community has saving faith themselves. And so for Jews... Not only do they have to look out for the, the fool's gold of, of 
finding safety in the fact that they're part of a community, but they also have to look out for the fool's gold of having the law which binds them together because they might begin to believe different things about the law. Oh, God gave us His commandments. Therefore, I'm right in God's eyes. Oh, I have a Bible. Someone gave me a Bible when I was a kid. I must be right in God's eyes, right? Because I know God's Word. I have His Word. What does that necessarily mean? So there's two questions that need to be answered. And the first question is this. Does being part of the community of Judaism, being, being part of the community of Jews, or any other faith community for that matter, does that keep you safe from God's judgment? Paul's already answered that question in Romans. And he says, no. That does not mean that you're safe. Second question is similar to it. Can I gain safety from God's judgment by keeping His law? Well, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 answers that. And I would invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 21 through 26 today. As we continue our journey through the book of Romans, we're in a series called Romans, Mercy to All. And when you found Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, would you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word? Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, I'll read out loud and you read silently. Scripture says, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, it says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us insight into understanding your word so that we might not misunderstand what you require of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever seen Michael Buffer? Do you know who that is? He, he's the ring announcer at boxing fights who very famously says, Let's get ready to rumble! You remember that guy? He's got a brother, Bruce, Bru Bruce Buffer. And he works UFC fights, Ultimate Fighting Championship fights. He's got a different line. Both lines are copyrighted. I hope I don't get sued. His line is, It's time! And then Bruce Buffer will announce each fighter in turn. And he'll turn to one fighter and he'll tell that fighter's name and his nickname and his hometown and his fighting record. And then he'll do the same for the other fighter. And we sort of have a situation like that here in Romans chapter 3. We have two different opponents. And we're going to have to turn to one or the other. And in this corner, we have the law of God. And according to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, the law of God is 100% pure. It promotes knowledge of sin. 
It makes you accountable. It shuts mouths and it contains no justification. But in the other corner, we have the righteousness of God. And according to the next verses in Romans 3, 21 through 22, God's own righteousness is apart from the law. It is witnessed by the law and the prophets. It is now available through Jesus. And it is for Jew and Gentile alike. We have one or the other that we're going to have to go with. In Romans 3, 21, let's look at that verse again. It says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, here's a critical concept that Paul is going to address again later in the book of Romans. Here it is. The law of God, we're talking about the Ten Commandments and all the various laws, the instructions that God gave the Jews. The law of God reveals something. It reveals the unrighteousness of man. The perfect law of God is a mirror. And when we look at it properly, we see ourselves and we see that we don't measure up. It reveals the unrighteousness of humanity. The law of God is perfect and humanity is sinful. However, now something else has been revealed. Not just God's law, but also God's righteousness. And it has been revealed totally apart from the law. Now how could this be? I mean, if God has spoken perfectly and told us how to behave perfectly, and yet this resulted in sin being revealed in our own lives, then, I mean, what else is there? I, I mean, isn't everything sinful then? Because the, the scope of sin has touched everything, all of creation. Doesn't sin infest everything? Is there anything that is not affected or diminished or warped or perverted by sin? Well, there's one thing. There's one thing in this world that is not infested by sin. Even in this world of sin, God has revealed His righteousness through something totally apart from the law. And to be perfectly clear, this something is actually a someone. Look at the next verse. Romans 3.22 Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. God's righteousness has been revealed in this world of sin. It's been revealed to us. And it is accessible to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Think about it. Instead of having your own wickedness and depravity and sin, you can have God's righteousness and glory and faithfulness. How do you obtain it? Faith in Jesus. It's that simple. 
It really is that simple. You trust in Jesus to save you. You don't trust in your good deeds to save you. You don't trust in your heritage to save you. You trust in Jesus alone to save you. You don't even trust in your community of faith to save you. But you trust in Jesus alone to save you. That's the only way. Who can receive it? Anyone. Anyone. Absolutely anyone. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter who you are. No matter who you are or what community of faith you belong to, Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Because it is the only way by which God's righteousness has been revealed. Everything else is infected and infested and affected by sin. You might say, but why? I mean, why can't I just do my best and, and God accept me for that? The next verse tells us why. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's as if God is up here and your very best is way down here and you cannot reach that high. No matter how you try, you cannot reach that high. You cannot achieve God's righteousness any more than you can throw a rock across the Pacific Ocean and hope that it lands in Japan. You can't do it. It is impossible for you. And so if you cannot throw a rock across the Pacific Ocean and you cannot achieve God's perfect holy standards on your own, then what's the solution? I must be justified somehow. You must be justified. Now, when, when you and I talk about being justified, we, we've sort of warped the English language a little bit. I mean, to be justified in, in our common vernacular is when we say things like, well, you know, uh, I know I did something wrong, but it really wasn't my fault. It was someone else's fault. But someone made me do it. The devil made me do it. Someone, and it, and, it's, and it, we justify our own actions. Even though we're caught red-handed. Even though we're guilty. We might even say guilty of sin. Even though we know we're guilty, we justify our own actions. God's justification is not that way. To be justified in a biblical sense means that, in, in fact, look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So according to the Bible, you've done wrong things. And so have I. There's no getting around it. There's no human justification for it. We've done wrong. We've sinned against the Holy God. We deserve our punishment. And so there, there's no getting around it. There's no sweeping it under the rug. There's no valid reason for your bad behavior and my bad behavior. But here's what God does when He justifies you. He gives you a gift. You might say, well, why a gift? Why does God give me a gift? Because God is gracious. That's why God gives me a gift. You might ask, well, what's the gift? Here's the gift. He declares you to be innocent. But you might say, I, I'm not innocent. I'm guilty. Well, that's true, but someone else has paid the price for your guilt. And you might say, well, who would do that for me? 
Christ Jesus. He's the one who did it for you. You might say, well, well but I'm, I'm still a sinner. I'm still a sinner. Listen, your sin is not the issue anymore. Now the issue is the righteousness of Jesus. Not your sins. It is Jesus' righteousness. You might say, well, what does that have to do with me? If you surrender to the Lord daily, God will take the righteousness of Jesus and he will instill it into your life. And day by day, you'll go through this process of transformation, sanctification, whereby you become more and more like Jesus. God has already declared you to be innocent. And throughout your life, God is making you into the image of His Son. And His Son is the only thing in this world that is righteous. God is making you into His own righteousness. So Christian justification is not making an excuse for sin. Christian justification is declaring you to be righteous before God and making you right before God. All of this can happen because Jesus died on the cross. Look at verse 25. It says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Let's take this carefully. First of all, it says God displayed publicly. It's talking about Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, He died a public death. There's nothing hidden about this. He was exposed for all the world to see. Everyone knew that Jesus died on that cross. He died a public death. Let me rephrase that. When God solved the problem of sin, God did it publicly. God didn't take care of sin privately in the realm of heaven hidden away from all of humanity to see. No, the Son of God died a bloody death on the cross and everyone could see it. And that's how God took care of sin. Jesus on the cross was on display for all the world to see. Now, next thing in this verse. I need some type of warning sound because we have a big word alert. Propitiation. What in the world is propitiation? Let's talk about propitiation. It simply means that although God must punish sin because He is holy and sin is not, He made a sacrifice. Think about that. God made a sacrifice that paid the penalty of sin in place of us paying it. Instead of God's wrath being poured out on us, God poured it out on His sacrifice. What was the sacrifice that God offered? His own Son. The Son of God paid for our sins. That's what propitiation means. And so when Jesus died publicly on the cross, His blood became the sacrifice that covered our sins. And we receive justification by having faith in Him. Why was this done? 
Look at verses 25 and 26. It continues in verse 25. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. What does that mean, over the sins previously committed? Before Jesus died on the cross. The sins that were committed before he died on the cross. His death on the cross paid for all the sins of, of humanity before his death on the cross and after. His death on the cross paid for the sins that you haven't committed yet. That does not give you an excuse to go out and commit sin. That should give you gratitude. That even if you mess up later today, even if you say a word that you shouldn't have said, even if you get angry unjustifiably at your kids, or kids get angry at you, God says you're forgiven. That ought to cause in us an, an understanding that we're grateful for what God has done. And maybe, maybe I should watch myself out of gratitude. And so for the sins that were previously committed, Paul says, for the demonstration in verse 26, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's a question for you. Here's a question you might have heard. You might have thought of yourself. Hey, why doesn't God just sort of ignore our sins? I mean, come on. Can't he just sort of sweep our sins under a rug? I mean, if, if God did that, then look at it. Then everybody could be saved because God could just ignore everybody's sins. But as it is, you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. And so anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus will not be saved. Why, God, why doesn't God just save everybody by ignoring everybody's sins and forget about this idea of having to have faith in Jesus in order to be saved? Valid question. Here's the answer. If God simply ignored sin and swept our sins under a rug and even swept our unbelief under a rug, he would be acting unjustly. God's character demands payment for sins committed. Anything short of that impugns the character of God. And you might say, well, it shouldn't be that way. It's not that big of a deal. Why can't God just forgive our sins, just sort of sweep it all under a rug, act like it never happened? Well, let me ask you, because you're not holier than God. And yet I bet, with this example that I'm about to give you, there'd be a little bit of holy, righteous anger. Let's suppose someone killed a person very close to you. Would you just sweep it under a rug? No. Uh-uh. Someone's got to pay, right? Let's say it's not that severe. Let's say 
someone stole your wallet. You want it back? Of course you do. You're just going to sweep it under a rug that someone now has your identity and they're going to start charging things to your credit card? Oh, no big deal. No. Come on. And if you and me, apart from Christ, we're unholy, we're unrighteous, we have within us a standard that says, no, make wrong things right. Don't you think that God, who is perfect, also has a standard that says wrong has to be paid for? Of course he does. That comes from God. That internal sense of right and wrong that you have in your heart and that I have in my heart, it comes from God. Therefore, the very character of God demands if wrong has been done, there has to be a penalty paid. God's character demands payment for sins committed. What is the payment? Romans 6.23 tells us what the payment is. For the wages of sin is death. That is the payment. And the only just payment for sin against a holy God. But God does not want us to have to pay that penalty. So he came up with a plan. He came up with a plan for he can remain just by punishing sin and he can be the justifier of our lives. God is both just and he is the justifier of our lives. And this option, this plan was very costly. It required the Son of God to leave the realm of heaven, leave all the glory of heaven, and take on humanity and limit himself into a human body with human feelings and human pain and human emotions and human suffering. And it required that even though he would live a life without sin, that he would be punished by the ones that he's trying to save. And they nailed him to a cross, and he died a horrible public death on that cross. And he did that willingly every step of the way. He did it out of his love for you because it is through his death on the cross that Jesus brings justification to our lives. He makes us right with God. That is the love of God. That God would go to such lengths to save someone like you and someone like me who don't deserve it. But he loves us that much. You know that Jesus didn't stay dead. You know, here in just a couple of Sundays, we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We're going to celebrate the time in history when Jesus rose from the grave in a glorified body, never to die again. Jesus rose from the grave, and through his resurrection, he gives us life. He gives us eternal life. 
And Jesus makes an offer to us. He makes an appeal to us. Trust in me and I will save you for all eternity. I'm going to take all of your sins and they're gone forever. Forgiven. Every last one of them. And then I'm going to make you part of my family. You're going to be my spiritual brother. Worshiping my heavenly father. Jesus makes us an offer. And I do not see how you could ever refuse it. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved.